What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Antler Up podcast. And today, Dimitri and I are joined by Aaron from The Hunting Public. And what a great uh, honor to have him on. And we talked a lot about different things with deer hunting. We talked about how he got into the industry. We talked about learning an area to hunt, looking at uh, the whole process of finding new sign, whether you're in state, out of state, you know, being adaptable as a hunter, what to look for while e-scouting. Uh, pressure scouting, hunting thermal hubs, hunting in October, and obviously their their bread and butter of hunting aggressively uh, throughout this season. So thank you, Aaron, for coming on. I really hope you guys enjoy this one as much as we have. Again, I just want to say thank you to all of you for all of your continued support. Uh, for those of you that just recently purchased our hats, thank you so much for for that. And it's hunting season now, so it's we're in October. Everybody's opened up right now. Uh, congratulations to all of you that have already filled some tags, whether it be uh, antler tag or antlerless tag. Uh, congrats. Keep getting after it. I know we are as well. And again, to look for some other uh, new episodes that we're going to drop weekly, uh, whether it be just Dimitri, Mike, and I talking about what we see in the field. We'll have some friends on. We'll have some other individuals that reached out talking about whether they fill their tag or what they see going on and some changes and what, what their style of hunting is going to be for the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. We'll probably air those on Fridays. So if you're interested and you want to come on, all for it, just message me on Instagram and we'll get that set up for well, for you. So again, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much to all of our partners. Uh, the number one that I want to talk about are two right off the bat is going to be America's Best Bowstrings. Thank you so much, Brian, over there. Uh, amazing quality strings. We run the Platinum Series strings on all of our bows between Mike, Dimitri, and I. Uh, we love them. Awesome stuff. Great people. So check out americasbestbowstrings.com. Check out tethernation.com. Loving the saddle that I'm in right now, the Phantom Saddle, the Predator platform. I have the XL coming this week. Really, really excited to get in that one. Awesome. I can't wait to talk about that on the podcast here soon uh, of just about what's my learning curve with that as well and how much I've been really enjoying that. And obviously right now, check out firstlight.com because the solitude kit is 20% off. Check that out, man. I It's the one piece that I've been saying for the past year of how much I loved it the past season. And uh, I, I, I'm really looking forward to putting that on again uh, here soon. So hopefully when the cooler temps drop. So thank you again for your continued support. Enjoy this one with Aaron. Wealth of knowledge. Follow the hunting public, which I'm sure you already are. So enjoy it. Thank you. Antler up. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Antler Up podcast. And on today, we are joined on the other line by Aaron from The Hunting Public. Aaron, man, how you doing? Doing great, dudes. Thanks uh, for having me. Hey, man, thank you for taking out the time of your busy schedule during the, the deer tours kicking off on getting on uh, online right now. So I know your time is limited. So appreciate you uh, coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. I'm chilling at home with the family this weekend, um, getting ready to head out in the morning to head up to Wisconsin and hopefully film Jake shooting buck here in the next couple of days awesome going so, going back to jake's home state that's pretty cool yeah he's been hunting up there for the last week and uh, hasn't got one yet but they've been close and bouncing around trying to find some bucks so i'm looking forward to it awesome dude well hey man aaron let's get into it and let's talk a little bit you know tell our listeners uh you know <laughs> i'm sure they know but you know a little bit of, about your background of you know who you who you are and where you're coming from man 
Uh, yeah, I'm from a small town, Missouri, a little town called Paris. Uh, it's got about a thousand people in it. I graduated high school with, I think there was like 40 people in my class, maybe a few, a few less than that. <clears throat> and I pretty much just grew up in the hunting lifestyle. Uh, a lot of people have been in my similar year, you know, they have a similar story, I suppose, but yeah, just grew up, uh, grew up learning to hunt. Uh, from a young age, I mean, my earliest memories as a kid was going to the woods <clears throat> with my family and friends and stuff and eventually got in, into, uh, into filming hunts when me and my cousin stole my aunt's camera when we were like <laughs> 10 or 11 years old and, uh, just kind of progressed from there that I, I knew from a very young age that, that making hunting videos is what I wanted to do. I was fortunate in that sense. So, you know, from basically 10 or 11 on all the time I was, I was working towards making hunting videos of some kind. And eventually the hunting public was born out of that. So that's awesome. I, it's, it's kind of funny that you say that because Dimitri sitting next to me, uh, he tells a story from when he was in middle school and growing up through high school. And he, Dimitri, you tell the story quick. Yeah. Like when I was growing up, I wanted to do the same thing. Uh, unfortunately I didn't go down that path, but, uh, I was, I was probably like 16 and, and I wanted to kind of do what you were doing. And, uh, back then there wasn't many avenues to really lead you into it like there is now. So right. I basically emailed Mossy Oak and, and I said, this is the route I wanted to take. And you know, what would I have to do to go that, that path? And I didn't really get a good response. Some, someone from the company emailed me back and was basically just fil film hunts as much as you can. And, you know, if there's some film school that you could get into and, and just trying to work your way in the industry. So I didn't really get a good leeway of, of getting down that path as, as much, uh, there is now, you know, there's really a lot more opportunity than there was back then. But, you know, was, was there a certain time for you that, that really you felt like this is it and, and what kind of path did you take to get into the industry? Uh, it, it was, it was a long progression, man. I mean, I, I, we started filming with that little camera and watching monster bucks tapes. Um, this is before the DVDs and stuff. And, uh, eventually we just upgraded cameras a few times. By the time I was 16, I was starting to go to like Turkey calling competitions and meet some people that were in the industry. And, uh, I, I talked my dad into helping me pay for a, a editing software to put on his, you know, his home desktop computer. It was like Roxio media creator. So it was like 90 bucks. Um, so we split it half and half and eventually I figured out how to capture footage and then edit footage by, and I didn't have any formal training or anything. I was just watching videos and trying to cut things similar to how they were doing it. Maybe put my own little spin in there here and there. But, uh, it was a slow progression. Uh, like I said, I was lucky to know this is what I wanted to do at a young age. So I was just sort of chipping away at this huge boulder, you know, yep. the whole, the whole time for about 15 years, basically. I mean, still doing it today. Um, and just making contacts, eventually started working with some guys at night and hail and doing some freelance filming, doing some freelance editing, upgraded my computer going to calling contests, meeting more people, going on as many hunts as I could with guys. I mean, even if it was for free, I'd be like, I'll go and film you. Right. You know, just to get the experience, even if it's money out of my pocket. And I guess the turning point was when I, when I got that Midwest Whitetail internship with Winky. Um, 
I, at that point, when I applied for that internship, I knew that it was a very, very competitive position. There was a lot of people that applied for it. Um, and I know that now because eventually I got hired there and I actually managed the intern process for him for about seven years. Wow. You know, and you would get anywhere from 50 to 200 applicants. Right. So, and you'd only select, you know, a couple for that position. But at that, at that point, when I applied for it, I had this entire portfolio of footage built up over a, about a decade. You know, a lot of it was crap because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing at all, right. but you eventually figure some things out. And at that time I had all of that stuff built up that I could show those guys. And that's definitely what helped me get selected and what has helped many before and after me get selected as well. Yeah. And I think too, Aaron, like when you talk about just the whole piece and things together, as far as videos, I mean, even right now it's, it's an ever evolving uh, industry where like new programs, new cameras, new this and new that oh, come yeah. out, you know, it's, it's kind of like for us that we are kind of just getting started with content. We're so green at it that it's like, it's almost sometimes overwhelming. And I try to just tr try to stick to the basics and not do too much in a video just so then that way I'm not like, you know, <laughs> going over my head on stuff. Oh, absolutely. I totally hear you there. <laughs> but awesome, man. Well, dude, I want to talk about something where I want this episode to really focus on some of the skills needed, um, like how you evolve as a hunter over time. Uh, you know, I know for myself, it's been even within the last two years of how much I've grown as a hunter and, and Dimitri's evolving as well. Um, you know, I want you, Aaron, if, if possible, you know, you guys have been successful for the last couple of years and I know you, you guys don't deploy trail cameras all over the United States for all of your hunts that you guys go on as, especially during your deer tour. Could you talk us through like your process for a hunter that is going to be going into a new spot or a new state, uh, how you go about, um, you know, finding that sign, you know, setting up on that, coming up with a good game plan and, um, you know, eventually how you start putting deer down and, and finding mature deer and finding the difference between, um, you know, a, a young buck to a mature buck as far as sign goes. Yeah, for sure. Um, to be honest, the, these tactics are all old school stuff. Yeah. Um, we are not reinventing anything at THP. Uh, I, what I think has happened though, over the last 20 years is hunting media has sort of created this, uh, this set of, you know, unwritten rules of, of how you go about shooting big bucks. Right. You know, and it involves trail cameras and it, it involves, you know, maybe food plots or bigger pieces of private lands and hunting certain areas, hunting certain States, whatever. It's definitely effective. Um, but the way we have, we have more success using tactics that I learned from like my uncles when I was a kid, you know, yeah. back in the nineties. And it, the same could be said for the rest of our group. Um, with that said, whenever we, whenever we go into an area that's brand new to us, we definitely do some scouting from a map before we go. And the main thing we're looking at is where are people going to be and where are they the least likely to be. Right. And those are the spots we're circling on the map. Um, that's the number, that's the number one piece of advice I can give somebody is like, whether you're hunting public or private, uh, human intrusion is the same thing. Human sense, the same thing. So if you go to a piece of private land and there's two other people that are hunting with you, for example, you ask them where they hunt, when they go there, when they are, you know, under what conditions, under what wind, 
and then you avoid those spots. <laughs> like you go, you go somewhere else. Um, and that's another thing as I should, I should say as a disclaimer is that these are, are not, you know, set in stone by any way means these tactics, everything can change, uh, you know, almost daily out there. So with that said, the, another big thing that you're going to hear me harp on is the, the ability to be adaptable and not be afraid to try stuff when you're out there, change your, change it up. You know, if something is not working and you're not meeting your goals, then you are probably doing something wrong. Um, you need to change your tactics and you need to, you need to adapt to what the deer are doing in that particular area. So I'm sorry, I don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse there, but no. <laughs> um, when we go into an area, we find the spots that we believe the, the lowest amount of human intrusion will be. And then we circle those on the map. And as soon as we get there, especially if it's an unfamiliar area, we cruise the roads. We check all of the access points for, and, and, you know, just learn the area because a lot of times you'll get to these spots and you'll, and you'll show a road on a map, but it's not actually a road that's passable. You know, I mean, you may, <laughs> you may, you may have a road that's it just rain and it may be a minimum maintenance road or a mud road and you can't even drive down the thing. Well, that's going to eliminate a lot of hunting pressure. Yep. So that's, that kind of goes back to what I said about being adaptable. And I'm going to continue to hammer on that, but that's what we do the first day we get there. As we hammer the roads, check all the access points, and if possible, we try to speed scout as many areas as we can. So, and it this also varies on time of the year, you know, from what you're looking for. But just as a sort of high level conversation here, I'll keep it to to that point. Yeah. When we get to a spot, you're diving in, you're scouting as many of those spots as you possibly can for fresh sign. And we try to do as much of that early in the hunt as possible. Like if it's a six day hunt, for example, I feel like you're almost better off taking the first day and a half, two days of the hunt even, and just cruising around and just running into spots and checking them. And, and I mean, if you can get to seven, eight different potential locations in one day scouting, then you're doing really well. You know, and what, right. what tends to happen for us is, say we go to eight locations, we find four that have fresh sign and two of them that are really hot. And then we know exactly where to start from that point. And then we start going in there and hunting those spots systematically, you know, for the rest of the trip. Yep. And often that, often that entails moving around a lot, you know, in mobile hunting. Well, and that's the, the big thing I think right now too, when you think about as far as the hunting industry is, is the being mobile. And I know you guys, I want to talk about it here a little bit later about saddle hunting, just because, you know, we're both running tethered setups and everything like that. Um, sure. that's been my number one biggest, biggest thing <clears throat> has been being more mobile. Uh, and it, it's just been one seeing deer on top of, you know, putting more deer on the ground, but just seeing deer in general, uh, has, has been so much, uh, better for me the last couple of years just because of getting a mobile setup together. Yeah, absolutely. The trick with, with hunting deer with the bow is you got to be close, man. Yeah. And especially white tails, we feel like you got to be 30 yards and in to have a, you know, a high odds chance. Exactly. Out of deer. So exactly. if you're watching deer at 75 yards <laughs> out of a stand or a saddle or a blind or whatever, 
you're just, it's just not cutting it. You got to find a way to get over there. You might have to dig a hole in the ground to get over there in the right spot. <laughs> exactly. But if you're that far away, you got to get closer somehow or another with archery equipment. Now you talked a lot about e-scouting before you go into a lot of these new states that you never been into before. Now, when you look at the map, especially let's say a state like here at Pennsylvania or Michigan or New York, that maybe be bigger timber and not so many ag fields or, you know, uh, what you have in Iowa, but looking at big timber maps, it, it's a little bit harder of figuring out, you know, when we're e-scouting here, trying to figure out where the bedding is, where the food is just because, you know, it's not obvious on the map. Now, can you dive into a little bit of your tactics looking at, you know, Onyx and, and figuring out these spots before you go in, um, just what you're looking for and, you know, is there a terrain feature or are you looking for a certain type of ridge or what you're looking for when you're looking at the map? Yeah. And what we found in most big woods type scenarios like that is that there is gobs of public land, like in PA, for example, there's a bunch of big wood scenarios. However, there is tons and tons of public land. So, Oh, chickens just flew up a roost behind me here. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's tons of public land up there. So as I'm map scouting, I am seeing a lot of that monotonous timber that is difficult to hunt. And it's, it's hard to find like habitat transitions and stuff in there, yep. but there's so much public land that you can find these little hidden holes off to the side or whatever. Like and another thing to keep in mind too, is maybe say you got 50,000 acres of just monotonous timber, but on, on some of the boundaries, there may be, you know, a private hay field or something where somebody is cutting alfalfa or maybe they're planting crops, maybe it butts up to a Creek, something like that. And even though that, that sort of habitat transition and diversity doesn't totally exist on public land and only partially exists on public land, those deer are going to be using some of that public land. So that's one tip, like look at the whole picture. Don't just look within the the boundary lines obviously you have to hunt within your boundary lines but you may find something that is in and around those areas that tips you off that adds diversity and therefore you know increases the carrying capacity of the deer in that specific spot um another thing i found recently because i've been map scouting pa a ton recently um especially big wood scenarios and what I've been seeing, and I don't know, this is the jury's out on this guys. Cause I don't have a ton of experience doing this. I'm just, I, this is where I think the deer will be, you know, and flip a coin. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong, but I see a lot of like thermal hub type areas in that steeper country out there that has a lot of that monotonous timber. Yep. And what I mean by a thermal hub is like, there's, there's a handful of ridges that all dump down into one spot. And there's like kind of a, it's almost like a bicycle wheel. The hub is the low point where all of those drainages and ridges all dump in. And usually in those hubs, in and around those hubs, there'll be a couple saddles that run up over top of the ridges and there'll be water down there because there's some sort of Creek for that's, that's created by all those drainages and stuff. And just because of the change in elevation, there will be some sort of subtle difference in the habitat. Like, even if it's just a difference in trees, you know, you may have a different species of trees growing on top of the ridges than you do at the bottom of those hubs. So that, and that, that slight transition will, 
you know, increase the amount of deer that is in that area. So those are, those are some specific areas that I'm going to target as soon as we get there. We're going to dive into those spots. Saddles, maybe not as much because we're going to be hunting in late October or third week October. I don't know how much the bucks will be cruising then. And I feel like until if it's before the rut, you have to be fairly close to where they're bedded in order to intercept them. I know saddles can be great during the rut, but I think we're going to head for those hubs. We're going to, we're going to be checking leeward ridges and that sort of thing for, for buck bedding areas and just small, subtle habitat transitions, maybe the edge of a clear cut, anything like that. Pine timber to hardwoods, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now you guys are coming out to PA this year, right? So that's, yeah. pre- that's pretty much why, yeah, why you're looking at that now, Aaron, cause you brought up perfect examples for actually what I was looking at because on actually just earlier today, uh, this week, this past weekend, actually for Pennsylvania in three units, uh, opened up this past weekend. Uh, yeah. the statewide is not until October 3rd and I may actually have to visit some family that actually lives in, uh, during <coughs> the week that actually lives in one of the units that are that's open so i was like hey i'll make a day out of it i'll go out hunting so i looked up some public land that is actually near my sister and uh and it's not that big of a as as far as like what i hunt here as far as acre is concerned on public land but i was looking at you know what are the entry points i was looking at some of the private that's nearby of, of some of that transitions like you were talking to and using on x that was helpful for me because i was seeing you know, we've been finding uh, a lot of sign at, at, at ridge points and, and just doing all t- different types of scouting that way uh, on that type of terrain. So I was kind of marking some some ways, uh, points on the, on the map. And that was something where I'm like, man, if I could get in this way and make my way around, just c- kind of hugging that private uh, public land, I might be able to set up in the saddle and, you know, maybe intercept a buck going from food to, to bedding uh, later on sure. in the evening. You know, that was my, my kind of thinking. So that kind of like makes me feel good that you kind of just touch on upon all that stuff. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if it'll work or not. Jury's still out on that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you in about a month. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pennsylvania is a tough state. I mean, I know you guys been in Michigan and other, you know, some of those states have been tough and, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I, my house actually border state game lands and, you know, the gates closed until, uh, the access, the, the state game lands. So you can't really travel it unless you use a bicycle, uh, over the summer months, which, which makes it tough. And, and, you know, they opened the gate up this past weekend and there's just been trucks and trucks and trucks the last two days, just passing my house on the dirt road, you know, going in and, and putting up stands and doing their scouting just because they haven't been able to do it all, all summer long. So, you know, that pressure is already there on a lot of these deer, you know, so even that first day they might've, you know, caught some scent and it makes it tough. It does. But I will say hunting in the heavily pressured States, it actually makes our, makes the, our choices easier as far as where we're going to hunt. Uh, for in Michigan, for example, Ted and I, uh, when was it that we went to Michigan? That was last fall, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Ted and I, about halfway through the trip, we weren't getting into much. So we just scrapped those plans and we spent, uh, like six hours one day driving and speed scouting. And we hit up six, eight spots is doing the exact program that I was talking about earlier. We hit up six or eight spots and the majority of those spots all had hunting pressure in them we found one spot that had fresh sign and no hunting pressure. 
So that we immediately knew to dive in there and Ted actually almost shot a mature buck in Michigan on the last day, had two of them come in at last light. Zach was filming him, but that was the spot that we found while we were speed scouting middle of the week. Right. Like we found that spot, went in there. We couldn't go in there that day cause the wind was wrong, but we went in there the day after that and he almost shot a buck. So that's, and we're going to be doing a lot of that in PA too. It's going to be lots and lots of pressure scouting and that, that pressure to be honest, actually helps you if you find the spot where it doesn't exist because it forces more deer into that area. Right. Now, Aaron, there's one hunt that I love that you had success on, and I think it was, man, now it might have been three years. Which The hunt where you shot that buck in I, I think it was back in, in, in Iowa where you, you were just off the road uh, not too far, and you got – do you remember – do you know which hunt I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, it was Ted filming it. Yes. 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 Yeah. I was on the hunting public then. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, Could you walk us through that? Just cause I find that hunt fascinating because you weren't, you know, two miles back, you know, you're, you're using just, just I, explain that hunt and what kind of led to that setup and, and having that opportunity. Well, that hunt was actually a, a rut hunt in a thermal hub, which is what I was discussing earlier that I've been map scouting in PA, right? Like that hilly type of terrain. That was at the base of a thermal hub and the thermal hub actually connected several ridges on private ground across the road. So the hub, the hub was almost part of it was in the road and there was a real sharp ridge that came down on the public side and dropped into that little bottom that Ted and I were in. And as we were driving down that road, scouting, we were just creeping along, like idling down the road, seeing where deer were crossing onto that ridge. And there was hardly any trails for about 500 yards down that ridge because it was so steep. Right. And right when it fell into the bottom, which it was one of five ridges that sort of fell into that hub, right? When it fell into the bottom, there was a big, heavy trail there. We piled off in the woods, found a scrape 30 yards from the road, another scrape 50 yards from the road, another scrape 60 yards from the road, bunch of fresh rubs. It's like, this is how the bucks are traveling from this huge block of timber on public to this huge block of timber on private. And this is a spot that we're going to hunt. But the tricky part with that particular hunt is that it's in the bottom. So your wind is really screwy. We, the only way we could get away with hunting that location was on a dead calm wind on a high pressure morning. So, you know, it was a, it was a calm, cold morning scent was just kind of hanging in the air and there was almost no wind at all, especially down low. Right. I knew once the day winds picked up, you know, around nine o'clock or so that we might be done. We might be toast in there because they get to swirling around and stuff and kicking off those ridges and the bucks are going to get you before they ever get to your stand. So we had about a three or four hour window there. As long as it was staying calm, we could hunt it. And I think we'd been sitting there for like two hours, maybe two hours and 15 minutes and looked up and that buck was walking he was crossing the road there was actually another big buck behind him so we sat there didn't see a thing for over two hours and then all of a sudden had two nice bucks coming from the private to the public and we noticed that a lot like cruising movement varies a lot in the rut but definitely seems like uh especially in our experience bigger bucks tend to cruise more in the in the mid-morning through midday through mid-afternoon almost like they wait till the does get bedded down they've been up rutting all night so they want to rest a little bit and then once the does get bedded down they kind of know where they're at it makes sense yeah <laughs> why, cruise, 
why go, you know, why go to 10 different bars if you know that every every girl in town will be at one <laughs> right. at, at a certain time? Right. You know? Yep, exactly. So, now, Aaron, to, uh, could you talk a little bit too? Because th that was the one thing. I, I, I'm glad. Thank you for explaining that hunt because I always just found that that hunt in particular so awesome. And just, you know, I, I felt like too, seeing your reaction afterwards, that seemed like a very re rewarding hunt for you in general. So that, I appreciate you kind of explaining that one. Yeah, it was a really fun hunt. Ted and I were just sitting up there in the tree talking like, man, we, we've been putting a lot of time in. Surely we're going to get a chance here at some point. And Ted, Ted had just said to me, he's like, man, I want to film somebody shoot a deer. And I looked up and I was like, good buck <laughs> yep. coming right here. That's awesome. Now talk a little bit, Aaron, about, because, you know, for us, we're starting up here in two weeks, basically. And, uh, do you have, do you hear about all that whole October lull and all that type of stuff? You know, what is your kind of attack as far as like t hammering October? Man. I think it's a great time to kill a buck to be, to be honest, I've been on more, especially big bucks in October than I have any other time of year. I haven't killed very many. I mean, I killed one really big one at the end of October a few years ago in Iowa uh, that was on Midwest whitetail, I think. Yep. Yeah. It was. And, uh, it's, it's a challenging time to hunt them. That's what I found is, is, Personally, I've been, I've been good at finding big bucks in October, but I have not been good at sealing the deal on them. Like I've had these encounters one after another for the last three or four years where I've set up in a buck bedding area and I've had a big one coming in and at the last second, something goes wrong. So with that said, I, I think it's a great time to be in the woods. If that's your goal, if you're trying to harvest a truly mature buck or the biggest buck on the property or whatever it is. I think October is the time to be out there. Now, um, now when you're hunting these early seasons, especially when you're out of state or, you know, so you only have so many days to hunt. So you're, you're being a little more aggressive, but if, if someone was hunting, you know, say Pennsylvania, that's their home state and they want to be a little bit more aggressive in that early season and, and get a little bit closer uh, to that bedding area, especially for the evening hunts, how, how would you suggest they, they set that up and, you know, should they be on the outside of the bedding or, you know, what, what wind direction do they want to be sitting on, uh, with that bedding and, you know, sh or should they dive into the bedding a little bit deeper? Can you explain what you would recommend for someone in that situation? Uh, get as close as you possibly can without getting, without busting the deer. And that's kind of, that's sort of a blanket answer because <laughs> it's gonna, it's going to vary, uh, depending on the terrain and the wind and all the conditions and all that stuff. But regularly in October, we're setting up in the bedding area and watching the buck stand up. So they're, they're within hundred yards of us a lot of times. And I think if you are in any scenario, you've got, if you, and you're hunting a mature buck, especially that time of the year, you have to be in there with them. If you're not in there with them, you, I'm not saying that you're wasting time because no time in the woods is wasted. In my opinion, you're always learning something, but you're not in the game for that hunt unless you are, unless you're that close. Because another thing, I, I won't go too far on a tangent here, but the word nocturnal gets used way too much in my opinion on big bucks because they just simply aren't nocturnal. They get up and they move 
before the end of legal shooting light, just like most of the rest of the deer, they just don't go as far. The big buck is slow. He stands up, he's chewing on stuff. He's rubbing on stuff. He walks 30 yards, lays down for 10 minutes, you know, licks his back, stands back up, just sort of waddles around in his bedding area in that comfort zone. And what I found is they, if you, if you find a buck bed or you find the, the area or say you see a buck stand up out of a bed in October, if you go over there and stand up in that bed about eye level where, what that buck can see when he's standing, that deer may make it to the edge of that area during daylight. And it's usually about a hundred yards. Right. <clears throat> if you're not inside that bubble, you're probably not going to catch them during daylight. Yeah. And I've been, I, I'm talking, I've been at 110 yards. I've been, I've been, I've been at 95 yards. And if I was at 85, I would have killed them or I would have shot at them. I should have said, you, you never know what you can't right. say yeah. that you would have, whatever, but I would have got an opportunity. That's I've literally awesome. had them so many times. And these are big bucks come in at very, very last light. And if you would have just pushed two trees up, you would have had them. Well, here's what I, Aaron, this is what I want to build upon with that is you, you go on your social media account, you'll see people comment, Hey man, you guys keep doing your great job. You changed the way I've, I've hunt, I hunt now and all that type of stuff. And I think the reason why, and you know, I could be, you could be like, no, you're totally wrong. But is that you, you guys put that information out there. Like you, I've, I know I could relate. I'm like, Oh, I remember that one video where you did get so close, but you were, like you said, 110 yards and not within that bubble. Um, and I think that's kind of made people be like, okay, I could push it back there. And that's something where Dimitri and I, you know, have been doing and, you know, we want to get better at. And uh, man, I, I think it's such a, it makes sense now. It's just like you were saying about learning some of your, your skills from your uncles and, and, you know, some of your family members, like for some of us, it's been like, you do not do this. You, you, you do not do that. It's almost like, almost like the opposite of what seems to be the, like what is actually works to help put a buck down. If that makes sense. Oh man. I mean, if you watch hunts on our channel, we kill them every which way, Yeah, you know, sometimes you'll find, you'll see them bedded and you'll, you can spot and stalk them. Sometimes, I mean, Jake and I, we were slipping into a bedding area trying to figure out where to set up a couple years ago and looked up and a buck was standing up browsing two hours before daylight. 60 yards from us. So we literally s crawled, you know, to within 25 yards of him. And he eventually came by it and too close. He was like 10 yards away and I got the full draw and he saw me draw and it, he busted me before I could get a shot at him. But I mean, there's so many different ways that you can, you can kill these deer. You can use, you know, you can use force movement to kill them. You can wind bump them out of bedding areas to a friend. If that's legal in your state, <clears throat> there's, there's a bunch of different ways that you can kill them. Right. So that's just the bit, that's the thing that intrigues me the most is, um, being able to adapt to the different scenarios or even the conditions that day or use the conditions that day to your advantage because that they're out there every single day. Those deer live out there every single day. And a lot of people only have weekends to hunt or they have three days or they have a, a handful of days that they've saved up for their vacation. Like if your goal is to shoot a nice buck, you can't be tiptoeing around stuff. In my opinion, like if I'm going to say anything that you can't do, that would be, that would be the thing that leads to 
you know, more tag soup than anything else yeah. is, is not pushing in far enough. Now, sometimes now with that said, you know, catch 22, you can go too far. You can blow the whole deal. And if you're hunting a small property of some sort, you, that whole, that thing may be cached. And if you don't have backup plans in place, that may take you more time, uh, to, to find areas. And that might be your whole hunt, but you've got to find the balance there depending on your situation. In PA, I'm looking at thousands upon thousands and thousands of acres of public land, and we're going to be there a week. So like if we don't find something that is just incredibly killer that we, that we want to be careful about and not burn up, we're going in, we're going in hard right? (laughs) (laughs) to try to get on those things. Now, now if you talked about kind of bumping that deer, what, what is your strategy if you're, you know, you're limited to, uh, the number of places you can hunt and you, maybe you push too far and and you do bump that deer. I know there's a lot of talk out there now of, you know, if you bump that deer once, it's okay to kind of set up in that area again, that he's going to come back and you're not going to blow them. You know, other people say that, you know, that deer's running and he's gone. Everyone has a little bit, uh, different of a philosophy with that opinion. What, what, what would you suggest or what would you do on a hunt if you kind of pushed back and you did bump that mature? buck that you were after what would you do in that that case in that scenario uh man it's hard to answer uh because it's so situation specific everything with deer hunting is so situational if if you bump a a big buck out of a bedding area and it's windy and he runs off but he didn't smell you he just heard you and he didn't even see you maybe he bounds off 100 yards and then he stops he just starts walking around blowing but you know he can't smell you. And when he gets behind something, you ease back out of there. You could go in there the next day. You could go in there in four hours and kill that thing. He could be right there. If you go in there and you flush him like a rabbit out of a brush pile and you watch (laughs) him run over the ridge full speed, you might not kill him in there the next day. (laughs) He, He might be moving for a while. And I've also found like if they smell you, I mean, even if they kind of hang around, it just doesn't seem to work. Like they, they figured it out. And and the reason why they're hanging around, still stomping and blowing, if your wind is going to them, if you're dropping milkweed and and you know that they caught a whiff of you, there's a good chance they're just spending that time processing what is going on. Right. Well, that's what I, I even feel in, in Pennsylvania, you know, a lot of these mature boxes, as we talk it on our podcast all the time is, you know, these deer see a lot of pressure, especially in the gun season, you know, people are doing deer drives and, you know, so they really know, you know, the sounds and the smells of humans, you know, and they've been lived through all that. So I think the hard part is if you do bump them, you know, they may not be gone forever, but it's going to be really hard to get on that buck because he's seen it before and he kind of knows how to dance around that, you know, to stay alive. I mean, that's, they're good at doing that and that's in their genes. Yeah. With that said though, they live in that area. So they have all of these little spots that they already know are safe. And that's why that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the pressure thing. It's like, if you find a little area that doesn't get much pressure, especially early in the season before those bucks have been getting hammered, um, they will gravitate to those spots. Like they, you're right. They live there if they're, and they're damn smart. If they're there and, and they make it through gun season 
for three or four years. Um, but they're still going to gravitate to those areas where they don't find human scent and they're going to set up shop there. And once you, once you penetrate within that bubble, those deer are comfortable because that's their home. I mean, think about how you and I walk around our house, you know, we're not expecting anything. We're just hanging out and going about business as usual. That's the way deer are act. That's the way big bucks are acting a lot of times in the middle of these bedding areas. You get them though. You watch their demeanor though, as they leave that bedding area and they enter say a food source on public land, that's getting pounded with hunters, their demeanor is going to change. Their, their ears are going to be picked up. They're going to be looking around and stuff there. And then if you come back four hours later in the middle of the night, their demeanor is going to change. They're going to be totally comfortable because they've been conditioned to that pressure and they know that's the time when it's safe. So during the day within that hundred yard bubble, that's the safe space. And that's where bucks will make mistakes because they're not expecting you to be there. If somebody was in there hunting them within that distance every day, the deer wouldn't be there. He'd yeah. either be dead or he would have left and found another spot. That's awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Aaron, for explaining all that. That's great. That's just great information all around. I want to kind of switch gear just because I know this will be kind of like the, uh, my, my first go around at cracking into a saddle this upcoming season. I know you guys been doing it the last like two, two years and everything, you know, talk a little bit about how being mobile over the last couple of years has been, uh, kind of like your, your, your guys is kind of bread and butter, uh, and talk about too, like the equipment that you have evolved with just to make it easier for you to set up and film and, uh, tag team and w w with that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, explain that just because, you know, gear is just, obviously there's millions of gear heads out there and I'm one of them. I love talking about it and, and looking at it and seeing what, what companies are coming out with. But I mean, for you guys, how has it made your life simple, uh, for what you guys are using right now? Uh, we've actually been mobile hunters for a long time. We used to pack around 30 some pounds of gear on our backs with, with tree stands and heavy sticks and all loud stuff and whatever. <laughs> You know, five gallon buckets used to sit on those and hunt all the time, you know, just hunt from the ground, sit on a stump if you need to. So that goes back a long time, but the new gear has definitely came a long way in, in just the efficiency of, of getting set up. That's one reason why I like the saddle. I, I still like a hang on tree stand a lot, especially if it's a lightweight model of some kind that's comfortable, but I can just get set up faster in the saddle. It seems like that's the, that's the fastest method with a set of sticks in a saddle. And I don't mind packing the extra weight of three or four sticks and a couple of eighters or whatever. It's no big deal. Like I said, I used to pack around 30 some pounds, <laughs> right. a, sad, a saddle platform and a couple of sticks feels like feathers in your pack compared exactly. to that. Yep. Um, so with, with that system now, I just feel like it, it enhances our efficiency so we can jet up a tree. We can, if we spot movement across a field or a ditch or whatever, we can shoot down, we can hop over there, get set up again relatively quickly and be ready to kill one faster that way. That's the biggest thing for me. It's just the efficiency standpoint. Right. And I, I, what was pretty cool is the, this past episode that you guys had with Greg and Gooch on there, what I thought was yeah. pretty cool was like seeing how, I think that was Gooch's first time in the saddle. 
Yeah. Yeah. I like just seeing that, like I told Dimitri, like over the weekend, I've been practicing, like just yesterday, I was uh, over at my in-laws house in the saddle just for about an hour. I was just maneuvering around, doing my full setup, seeing how high I could get with the three sticks and some aiders and doing some, some shot scenarios and, uh, getting, sending down the quiver and getting it sent back up so I could take some more practice shots. But man, that's one thing that I'm looking forward to just because of, like you said, if, if, if we're trying to get a little bit more aggressive and get inside that bucks bubble, if we got to move an X amount of yards for next time, we're able to sneak around and, and do that. Um, that seems to be for me, like the easiest and quickest way to get set up so far. Yep. We've seen the same exact thing. That's awesome. Now, Aaron, let's let's talk a little bit about your Western hunt, just because Dimitri and I, we came back from we we hunted uh, out in Utah for the opener for for some mule deer. Now, I know you guys went for elk, right? Yep. Yeah. So we went for some mule deer and man, we took a we took we took a little beating on, yeah. on our on our <laughs> trip. We actually haven't talked about it on the podcast, which is <laughs> actually kind of pretty cool. And for us, man, this was our first Western style backpack, like backcountry hunt. Uh, we went with another buddy of ours who had a lot of success in Idaho the past couple of years as far as mule deer and elk. And uh, we went out and we knew we, like we saw on the map there just you know ton of recreational stuff, and we're like, man, we, we might run into some of this stuff but what we found troubling when we did get there when we would avoid that area of the recreational there were like what would you say uh roads that were not on the yeah just like utv that wasn't on the onyx maps and you know almost self-made uh trails that probably people just drove over the years up through you know up through the the canyon and and kind of made their own path just over time that became a trail that probably wasn't on the map which which was kind of frustrating at times when we were locating deer and and or either just trying to get to a glassing point that was away from a lot of the other uh pressures so talk like Aaron talk a little bit about your experiences past hunt just because I know like you said you guys were out there for almost two weeks and uh man it just seems like uh such a fun exciting trip and you know if you can just talk a little bit about it yeah for sure uh that's kind of uh that's that's kind of my favorite thing to do is elk hunt um in September and I don't get to do it near as much as I would like uh just because you know we're from the Midwest and we got all these other irons in the fire, but it's my favorite thing to do. So when I drew the tag for Wyoming and I decided that I was going to take a solid two weeks to go out there. And that's one thing I've noticed in my limited elk hunting experience is that when you're archery hunting elk, unless it's like in some sort of primo once in a lifetime unit, for me, I need at least 10, 11 days to get an opportunity. I've hunted like 42 or 43 days in the elk woods and I've had four opportunities with a bow in that period of time. Wow. And that's, and like, I'm not, I'm more of an opportunistic bow hunter when it comes to elk. Like if, if there's a nice branch antler bull and it's inside a bow range, I'm counting that as, you know, and, and I get a legitimate full draw opportunity at the elk. I'm counting that as an opportunity. Yeah. Whether he's a, you know, a four by four or five by five or whatever doesn't you know yep 200 or 400 <laughs> i don't care <laughs> um the thing's bugling and it's freaking huge so yep. they're great uh but that's why i took two weeks to go out there and ted and i went we were gone uh about 14 and a half days 
and it was one of the hardest hunts I've ever been on. Um, you just are that, that stuff out West, that rugged steep country is just relentless. And, uh, Cody Kellum from born and raised outdoors was hunting with us. And he's like, man, he brought up a good point. He's like, you know, an elk's lungs are like four times the size of yours and they live and walk up and down these things every single day. So there's no way you're going to catch them. doesn't matter. You know, you're just not going to catch up with them. If you start behind them a ways in the morning, you got to wait until they stop (laughs) because they're going (laughs) to outpace you. They're just, they're huge and they, they know how to maneuver through that terrain really fast. So it was a daunting task. Like we were, we were completely spent by, you know, the seventh, eighth day of the trip and rest becomes a big factor then, you know, I mean, you're burning two or 3000 calories a day and you're only eating 2000 calories a day. And on those longer trips, you're not getting adequate rest every night. You're getting four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep before you know it, like that's going to catch up to you. And you can't like, you have to push through that and continue because a lot of times it's going to take 10 days or so before (laughs) you, before you get your chance. I had two opportunities at a bull and 12 days of hunting, which was really good as far as what my standards are Right on the, on the, on the few elk hunts that I've been on anyway. Well, what, what's really cool, what you just said about how like the elk just having that size of lungs. And the one thing that Dimitri and I, we got back from camp the one night, we're like, man, like, did you notice that every mule deer that we saw now, obviously different species, but we were like, they just didn't stop. Like they, if they were crossing through a drainage or something along those lines, they just kept going. Like there was no stopping them. I mean, they were, they had a plan. They had a, you know, they wanted to get from point A to point B. So our... It, it was cool to see like some of our whitetail hunting tactics for like what we were doing, implementing them into the white or into the mule deer country side of things. Um, but it was just fascinating just to see of how they just like, if they're coming down through this drainage, they're going to continuously walk. Like they might browse for a little bit, but I remember sitting there at one point on the side of a hill and I saw like a group of uh, a doe and, and her two fawns basically just coming through. And within <laughs> three minutes, man, they were on the other side, which was about a hundred and maybe 250 yards. And it's just up and over the ridge they went and then boom into the next drainage. It was just crazy to see that. And I'm like, man, if that was a buck, I'm not in a good position to be shooting a, a buck right now. So it was a huge learning opportunity for me and, and seeing like the difference between, like you said, just wait, for us dealing with, with the hunting pressure here in central Pennsylvania to going out there and just dealing with, you know, side by sides, our second day of like full true hunting. Was that, yeah, it was our second day. We checked out a a decent spot, what we thought like going off of the map and we drove up and uh, it, as we were before first light, we saw ATV lights pretty far out and we're like, okay, they're, they're farther away. And they went around the one, uh, mountain basically. And it, it got light. Dimitri was making coffee and we were glassing. And I came over to his side and cause where I was kind of glassing was looking over on private, but also public. And I was, I went over to his side, Aaron, and I go, Dimitri, there's two, two deer across the Canyon. So let's, 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 let's look. And as we were looking we saw there were two, two bucks. One was a really nice fork and the other one was a four by four at least. Mm-hmm. And, uh, next thing you know, we, we looked up where the 
what would you say the mountain kind of just ended basically and we saw two atvs just like sitting there waiting glassing this buck and like two guys just running down the mountain <laughs> at, at these yeah. mule deer and like he and i originally originally when we first saw these deer we we're like okay let's relax everybody that we had on the podcast and kind of information that you read like you know watch come up with a game plan that's what we said to each other next yeah. thing you know you just see joe schmo like sprinting at this <laughs> yeah. mule deer yeah. we're like all right let's see where these deer are going to go for their exit <laughs> let's go stand there and we did and uh we were just a little bit too far right basically and they went went kind of straight up over but man it was just a whole different ball game for us oh yeah that stuff out west is is really fun it's it's way more active type of hunting than what i'm used to with deer hunting in the midwest and and in the south and out east um you know it, that's deer hunting to me seems more like whitetail hunting like what we're used to it seems more like a mental grind yeah it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a season long type of commitment. You're trying to get one or two opportunities, but with those trips, you're there for a very limited window and you have to make it happen. So it's super active the whole time. Like you're pushing, 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 trying to get your chance and, uh, let the chips fall where they may past that point. But that's what I like about out West is big country and being able to see stuff from a long ways and called elk and stuff man that's fun oh awesome man well what what day did you get lucky i killed him on the 12th day that's awesome wow. and we'd hunted this particular area about six different times and always glassed elk in there never ran into many hunters back there we saw lots of hunters throughout the rest of the unit but for whatever reason this one area you had to cross a river to get over there and nobody was doing that so Every time we got up on that shelf for this bench where these elk were at, we got into bulls, but they just weren't talking much. I mean, you would get a couple bugles here and there. Uh, you know, we, we, what we would do is glass them at first light, watch where they would go in bed, so long as they didn't go up and over the face, which they did occasionally. But if we saw where they bedded and there was a bull in there, then we would try to get to wind ride and slide in there midday and get within that bubble and call to the bull and see if we could pull them away from cows. The issue is, is that once you get up there, you need them to say something back. <laughs> I mean, you need them, you need them to bugle. And if they're not acting, if they're not real active, sometimes that's hard to get them to do. Uh, but for whatever reason, on the 12th day, we went into that, that same spot. We glassed elk like we had done many times before, but on our way up the ridge, we could hear them bugling. And it was like, okay, there's a cow coming in up here today or something because there's multiple bulls and they're screaming and we got right up in there um, in the middle of all of them. And right before I shot him, I had a, we had like 12 elk within 30, 40 yards of us, including two nice bulls that I, you know, was going to shoot one on one side of me and one on the other side. It was just a matter of who was going to get there first. That's awesome, dude. Well, no, I can't wait to, to see that footage. Well, Aaron, I mean, kind of to wrap things up, man, I, I obviously the deer tour is coming up. You know, what do you have left, uh, lined up for you for the 2020 season, man? Uh, me personally, I'm not going to go as hard this fall <laughs> as I, as I have in the past. To be honest, I used to hunt way harder for deer in the Midwest whitetail days. Uh, but since we started THP, there's been just way more irons in the fire and I don't, I don't, uh, go as frequently as I did then. But with that said, 
I got an elk in the freezer now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I don't really need much for deer meat. I mean, that's basically what I eat all year is deer meat. Um, and I'm out of deer meat from last year, but I got this elk in there. So I'm not going to hit it too hard. I'm going to go, I'm going to hunt Iowa. I'm going to hunt, probably hunt Pennsylvania or try to. We haven't really decided who's going to get the tag up there yet, but, and I've got a Tennessee license and then I might gun hunt in Georgia in December. Awesome. So, awesome, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your wisdom and everything. And, you know, where could people obviously check out THP and, and you out on, on social media and stuff? Uh, yeah, you can follow us on any platforms, Instagram, Facebook, even on TikTok. I think if that's even still legal <laughs> um, and YouTube and Amazon prime video, anything, the hunting public and the hunting Awesome, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on everybody. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one until next time. Antler up. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Antler Up podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, drop a five-star review. It helps us out. It helps us continue to grow. And if you have any questions or anything or shout-outs that you guys want to do, send us a message on Instagram and uh, follow us on Facebook. Check out antlerupoutdoors.com. We have our hats up on our website. And uh, again, thank you so much for the support. I hope you enjoy this one. Get after it. Best of luck to you. Hit the woods hard. Shoot straight. Antler Up.